Hey everybody, this episode is brought to you by Lift Big Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or, like me, from your garage. Uh, He also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new... Go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code DONKEY to get 15% off the Phalanx Method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers, Iraq and Iran, we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As the conflict between his country and Iran got underway earlier this year, it was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. Hello, welcome to another episode of Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. That's us. I'm Joe. I'm Nick. And uh, today we are on part two of the Iran-Iraq war. And Nick is over there smelling his own armpits, which is interesting. Honestly, my deodorant smells fucking fantastic. I bought a new one, a new stick the other day, because I usually stick with the same one. Yeah. The Old Spice, Swagger, Pure Sport. Bought a new one. Smells fantastic. I don't, I never understood why like Old, Old Spice went from being like normal sounding deodorant names to like swagger mountain <laughs> wolf gun like <laughs> this makes any sense to me anymore uh it's not supposed to like i get mine says wolf horn on it god it's so stupid or kraken uh, that, you know when i when i'm listing the things i want to smell like a wolf is a number one and a, and a sea creature is number two yeah all right uh so like i said we're going to be talking about uh iran iraq war part two today uh so if you're just tuning in, go back week, listen to part one, or don't. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. Yeah. Um, so uh, last week when we left off, uh, Iran and Iraq were at each other's throats. Uh, Iran, Iran was full of revolutionary fervor and wasn't going to put up with Saddam's shit any longer, while Saddam saw a weak, hamstrung government without a functioning military and started getting ideas about oil wealth. Things only got worse from there. Um. So anti-Bathist riots arose in Iraq Shia areas by groups who were working towards an Islamic revolution in their country. These events were obviously led, organized, and planned by agents of the Iranian Revolution. Uh, in April 1980, Grand Ayatollah Mohammad Bakr al-Sadr and his sister Amina Haidar were hung as a part of a crackdown and to restore Saddam's control over the area. The execution of Iraq's most senior Ayatollah caused outrage throughout the Islamic world. What the goal was, was pretty clear to everybody. I killed one Ayatollah, I'll damn sure kill yeah. another. Um, probably not a good time to be a, an opponent religious leader in Iraq. Uh, He's going for that shock and awe. 
Ooh. Yeah. A couple decades early for that one. Yeah. Uh, so in April 1980, Shia militants assassinated 20 Ba'athist officials. Deputy Prime Minister Tariq Aziz was actually almost assassinated as well. Aziz surrendered, but 11 students were killed in the attack. Sorry, I said surrendered. He survived. Yeah. Doesn't even make any <laughs> like, sense. Um, he, he survived uh, and survived the attack. Um, it, Aziz is an interesting character and kind of undercoats what um, the interesting government that Saddam himself led because he was a secular dictator. I mean, he was a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of people may have came away with the idea of the last episode that I was like on a pro Saddam side here. And it's just not the case. Uh, but uh, Saddam was a was a fucking garbage monster. But he did have a, a strange secular government, and uh, Aziz was actually a Christian. Um, oh. Yeah, he's a. They're called Chaldean, um, but yeah, he uh, he was a Christian. Uh, still a giant fucking monster, yeah. but uh, you know, Christian. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and he uh, would he would lead a regular life all the way until the American invasion, two thousand three, and uh, was arrested and later sentenced to death. So yeah, he got what was coming to him. Uh, so three days after the assassination attempt, the funeral possession was being uh, held uh, to bury all the students that were killed on accident. Uh, that was also bombed. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Iraqi information minister Latif uh, Nassim Al-Jazami was barely survived themselves. And uh, it was uh, all assassination plots that were plotted by uh, Shia militants, trained, funded and inspired by Iran. Um, it was pretty clear to so, everybody that uh, in Iraq's government that this was had Iranian fingerprints written all over it. So the funeral was bombed. Yes. Where the people in the funeral, like the dead people, yeah, were the, bombed again. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Dead, t- twice dead. Yeah, because we live. We uh, we were talking about a, a place in uh, world history now where people are blowing up dead bodies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Saddam was pretty terrible towards the Shia population in the first place. So galvanizing them to try to kill Saddam wasn't really hard for Iran. Um, but Saddam wasn't the kind of person to take blame for anything. So instead of trying to mend his relationship with the Shia population, he just crushed them brutally. At the same time, he decided if Iran was going to fuck with his country, he could damn well fuck with theirs. Um, how? Oh, so, so I, I think, yeah, I, I go into this a little bit later, but Saddam got uh, away with a lot, um, mostly because he wasn't Iran. And that's pretty much what it boils down to. Iran was the international boogeyman. Yeah, well, I know Saddam was like backed by countries and shit. Oh, like like us. Yeah. Yeah. And Russia and China and France and yeah, pretty much everybody. Yeah. Um, actually, the only enemy that they had during this whole time, ironically enough, was Syria. Uh, oh, yeah. So but uh, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, he uh, Saddam soon helped to instigate riots among the Iranian Arab population in the Khuzestan province. Uh, remember, that's the one that he really, really wanted. Right. Uh, this worked well for Saddam. He could play both roles that he loved to champion. That was pan-Arabism and socialism, of which he was actually neither. And uh, he just le- leveraged themselves to make himself rich and powerful. This um, guy. But uh, why did Saddam need more oil money, you think? Like, Is it I mean, something cool? He already has all this oil, um, but uh, it's because he ran his country like a fucking spoiled, drunk trust fund kid. Um, he kept no accountability of how much money he was spending. Right. Um, Dan Blazarian. Cool. Yeah. Like, it's like Dan Blazarian if he had the a- access to an entire country's GDP. Like, 
even like he at the same time he was promising all these massive infrastructure projects, he was also spending like something like twenty five percent of his GDP on the military, and this is before the war. Yeah, so he wasn't spending his money well at all. Um, getting some brand new shit, and that's just to go into the personality quirks that he had. I mean, at one point he sent an entire Boeing seven forty seven full of gifts to his personal magician, which is something he totally had. Yes, yes, <laughs> and that's what he sent. I, I just as gifts. I, I couldn't find anything in particular. What, it, what I hope it was. it was like the can with the fake snakes coming out of it. Oh, like yeah, a shit ton of those. Yeah, he's a zany individual. That's <laughs> Saddam, and the, you know the, he also had like uh, fleets of luxury cars and Rolexes and like gold plated AK 47s and gold plated toilets. I mean, at this point we've all kind of seen pictures of his palaces too. I mean, that's what You're where this money really is going. describing this whole damn Blazarian thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, he's exactly, he, he's a Saddam Hussein is a Trump and, and <laughs> that is he spends money like a poor person thinks a rich person should spend money because Saddam Hussein did grow up poor shit. He grew up as like a, um, a nomadic farmer mm. kind of in the decreet area. Like he grew up dirt poor. And the only reason he made it this far is because he was really good at killing people. Seems like it. Like his first position as a Bathist official was as an assassin. Was he any good? <laughs> yes, he was very good. Ooh. Uh, he was very good at it. And that's how he kept getting promoted. Um, so, uh, and uh, back on topic, because I could talk about, Sam's personal life all day. Like he's a romance novelist. But that's not what we're here to talk about. He yeah. has those. Yeah, he has like two you of them. You can't just I think. skip over that. He has two of them. I think. Um, I think we need to do a book, a uh, little a book report yeah. on them. Uh, I'm so for that later. Uh, and I've actually been looking for a copy of the book, and they're really hard to find. Uh, all they are is some shitty allegory about him. Like it's a rom- one of them's a romance novel where he is a loving king. And they're all about him. Yes. He, he's the main <laughs> character in all of them. I've kind of figured that like it's I really a, did. It's all like a weird romance uh, allegory where, where he's the good guy and his the woman that he's longing for is instead uh, falling in love with someone who absolutely is supposed to be the United States. Yeah, they all came out like the early 2000s or the late 90s. One of the two. Anyway, back in time. That's God awesome. Damn it, quit doing this to me. Nick. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think one's called like Zania and the King. You just went back off topic on your own. I know. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, with these ends in mind, he began to whip up his own little civil war. Uh, he began to support the uh, Iranian Arabs in labor disputes, which eventually led to outright uprisings and armed battles between the, uh, Arab uh, activists and Iran's revolutionary guard corps and, uh, other militant groups. Uh, they ended up killing about a hundred people on both sides. Hmm. Saddam's proxies in the Khuzestan province would carry out multiple attacks against Iranian targets, ostensibly for like Iran, uh, Arab sovereignty in the region. Um, but Saddam didn't want Arab sovereignty. He just wanted to dominate them. Yeah. I'm assuming like if he had agents on the ground, I'm assuming he did, um, that they just left that part out. <laughs> like, no, dude, we're totally here for yeah. your independence. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's, we're all Arabs, bro. Um, <sighs> the most notable, uh, of these events, which is one that most people have probably heard about. And that's the Iranian embassy siege in London in 1980. Uh, so six armed Khuzestani Arab insurgents took control of the Iranian embassy staff and took them hostage. Eventually, the insurgents got jumpy and executed a hostage. And uh, that's when the British SAS uh, counter-revolutionary warfare wing stormed the embassy in broad daylight in front of live camera audiences. And this is like the middle of the day during like, I guess, the British version of Sweeps Week. So there's like millions of people yeah. watching. It could not have happened at like a more opportune time for the most people possible to be watching. I'm pretty this. sure a lot of us have seen some videos of it. Yeah. And there's a YouTube like there's clips, multiple YouTube videos. That I'll, I'll post onto the Twitter feed when this episode comes out. 
Um, and you know, it had a weird drawback to the SAS. Um, actually two drawbacks. Um, most, now most people know the raid for being the first time the world's premier special forces unit ever was seen going to work by normal people. Um, but another thing was that, uh, several of the SAS soldiers were actually accused of outright murder. Um, Oh yeah. Uh, it, it was uncrowded. Nobody's ever punished for it. And it's just one of those footnotes, not saying that they did it. I'm just saying it needs to be said was, uh, I think, uh, one or multiple of the of the insurgents um, were wounded, and they just finished them off. Oh, okay. Um, which is honestly pretty common in SAS Green Beret type operations. Yeah, um, there's actually a U.S. Navy SEAL that's currently facing charges for doing the exact same thing to an ISIS fighter. Um, and another issue with the SAS is it became so popular that the Ministry of Defense almost disbanded it entirely. I mean, it's kind of like. I mean, it, it, this idea of it becoming too popular is yeah. kind of laughable now. Um, <laughs> but back in the day, like they operated in shadows. Nobody was supposed to really know who they were. Um, instead, it drove up like recruitment to the point they stood up like three or four more SAS units. So it all ended up working out for them. They the weren't end. the SEALs. I mean, they still uh, the SAS doesn't exactly have a great reputation for not writing a whole bunch of books either. They made a whole movie about it. Uh, they they did. Bravo two zero. Yeah. Yeah, I think his name's like Andy McNabb. But yeah. How many of those movies? And then how many Navy SEAL movies? Well, you have to look at the There's differences. There's a shit ton. You have to look at the differences of the of the nations where they come from, though. Um, troops aren't exactly given the hero worship treatment in the UK as much as they are here. Um, I mean, it exists, but not to like the the almost comical extent it exists in the United States. Yeah, I know nothing about that whole UK I might just be pulling that on my ass, <laughs> but I mean, it certainly seems that way from an outsider looking okay. in uh, any of our British or Irish or Scottish listeners. Uh, feel free to correct me on that because I know there's at least two of you. Yeah, I'd like to know, too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the raid had a strange benefit for Iraq, uh, even though the terrorists were absolutely Saddam's boys. And there's good reason to think that the British knew this, because <laughs> remember, not only did the Brits hate Iran already, they absolutely had MI6 operatives in Iraq. They had to know this was Iraq. Right. But they weren't going to say that. They needed Iraq. Because, I mean, like I said, Iran's the, the international boogeyman. The the person that they know they can use against is Saddam, or at least as a blocking force, them and and uh, the Saudis. So there's absolutely intelligence um, operations going on all over the place. I highly doubt that this group of people traveled all the way from Iran to the UK without MI6 knowing. Yeah. Um, so the British government instead blamed Iran for the attack uh, on the West, despite the fact that Iranian agents have never actually done that at this point. Um, Did Iran say anything like that wasn't us? Oh, no, no. They used it to build street cred. Nice. <laughs> um, uh, so. What was it? Um, so. Even though like so the Brits kind of blame this on the on the revolution. Which is kind of stupid because they were. Arab insurgents fighting for sovereignty of a completely different providence yeah. and had nothing to do with the revolution. Um, so despite all that, um, once Iran was blamed for the attack, they never once said, Hey, look, that was Iraq. Um, like anybody in the right mind would have done. And again, they knew this was Saddam as well. They would have known that they sent these dudes out there. Yeah, you sometimes you need that street cred yeah. in order to get your stomping grounds squared away. Well, I mean, even then they, they still didn't make this work for them in any rational sense. So first they blamed it on the U S and the UK as a false flag. 
like any good Alex Jones fan. And then they said that the terrorists killed in the attack were, quote, martyrs to the revolution. So which one is it, Ayatollah? Yeah, it doesn't make any fucking sense. I mean, so, yeah, they had nothing to do with the revolution because they're both Arab nationalists, effectively. um, And they were anti-revolutionaries. So this is what a chess match must look like between two total fucking idiots. Because where does this piece go? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to put it here. And I mean, I, I can insult the Ayatollah's intelligence all I want. Now he's dead. I'm not Iranian. Fuck you. I don't care. But and he was a piece of shit. But he was smart enough to pull off this entire revolution, subvert all of his political opponents to get to this far. But he couldn't figure this out. And at the same time, he couldn't even send out like a cohesive message the whole time. Like, if it's you, cool, it's you. But like, you know, yeah, they're martyrs to the revolution. Yeah, take that, you Western fucking devils. <laughs> but like within weeks, he's just changing his mind yeah. left and right. No, no, he's maybe old- he forgot about his like first story. And he's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. What I say? Yeah, nobody took the cliff notes of that shit. <laughs> yeah. Um. So all this combined with the now daily skirmishes at the border told Saddam that it was now time to act. Um. Saddam's military intelligence got back to him, and it did not do Iran any favors either. Uh, guarding the entire Kuzhistan province was about one battalion of poorly led and poorly equipped soldiers. And the entire area was only supported by one company of functioning tanks. Um, making matters worse for the Iranians, their sparse defense was fixated around the shot all Arab river um, under the idea that no one would be able to cross it. But Saddam had plenty of river crossing equipment. Yeah. Like plenty of it. And they probably should have known that if they were paying attention. Um, the real threat Iran posed, at least in Iraq's thoughts, was the former Imperial Iranian Air Force. So how was Iran gonna or how is Iraq going to deal with that? Well, they had just been on the receiving end of a textbook preemptive airstrike only a few years prior during the six-day war named Operation Focus, carried out by the Israeli Air Force. They weren't a direct target of it because they're just too far away. Yeah. But um all of their allies got their shit stomped in by this. And they the only thing they noticed about it was they use Mirage aircraft. Those are fucking cool. And uh, well, I mean, that kind of all boils down to Saddam's line of thinking. It, it wasn't good planning. It wasn't good pilots. It was the planes. I need Mirages. <laughs> so he went out and got them from France. And that's like I kind mean, of one of his things is like, yeah, sure. Equipment is cool. And having the good stuff is like obviously good. But yeah. uh, you still need the people in the planning. And the well, more more importantly, what the Iraqis lacked this entire war was any kind of functional, cohesive military intelligence structure at all, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, so that's what he wanted, and that's what he got, and that's what he planned to do. Um, that's all, all he was going to do was launch a massive one-day strike, surprise attack on all Iranian air bases. Um, the problem is, Tehran is about. A thousand miles away, um, give far. or take. That's really far. I'm just ballparking that. Okay. <laughs> he didn't have plane. He had a couple planes that could make it that far, but not a whole lot. Um, also, they had no intelligence on the on the Iranian Air Force and its capabilities. Um, but one would assume that they would learn some lessons. Um, no, uh, they they really don't. Um, all Saddam said is, well. The Israelis did it. I have the Israel, same planes that the Israelis used. Therefore, I can do it. Bing, bang, boom. And that's what he tried to do. And on September 22nd, 1980, the Iraqi Air Force launched a surprise attack 
on 10 Iranian airfields, including the capital. It turned out, however, that the Iraqi Air Force was not the Israeli Air Force, and the Iranian planes were not seriously damaged whatsoever. Um, the reason for this was a few reasons, but uh, is because that the Iranians had simply parked their jets in hardened reinforced hangars, which is something that the Iraqis should have known yeah. if they had any kind of reconnaissance. Who needs planning? Yeah, uh, as pretty much anybody would have done, and something that the Israelis did before their attack, but that was kind of an implied task. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Iraqis should have known if they if they were paying attention. Um, I know what you're thinking. Why the hell didn't they do any recon before launching the entire damn war? Um, well, Saddam had told his generals to plan for war about a week before they had actually started. Plenty of time. A week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his, and this, this is the, a bad part because Saddam himself had been roommating on this war for months, if not years, um, at least since the revolution. Like, a, a, at least since the revolution kind of began, he's like, shit, now's my chance. He he's never been dreaming about te- it. He never thought to tell the generals, hey, start coming up with yeah, a plan. Yeah, he's been dreaming about it. He, he just never thought to tell anybody to start coming up with a plan about the fucking thing. Um, I mean, his military leaders are morons. That will go, you'll see many reasons why they're morons later on. But, I mean, even, like, if you put enough idiots in one room, they'll come up with something resembling a decent plan. But not if you give them a week. Uh, depends on what you put in the room with them, I guess. Uh, so the only thing that saved the Iraqi air force from getting shot out of the sky was that the Iranian air force was so crippled by the purges of the revolution. It couldn't even launch a counterattack. Uh, meaning that Saddam's air force is dispatched to destroy an entire enemy's air force and only succeed in denting some airplane hangars. And to nice. make, and to make matters worse that the Iraqi air force reported back to Saddam that their mission had been a resounding success. I'm pretty sure they just didn't want to say boss, like, Hey, we've we really, fucked yeah. up. No, and you'll find out why soon. Sweet. Um, it, it turns out that they didn't have morale as much as they had crippling fear of failure. Um, I would so, imagine. Yeah. Uh, at the same day as their attack, uh, Saddam proudly proclaimed that the Khuzestan was the newest province of Iraq. Just like that. Can you do that? You didn't have troops in it yet. Yeah. Can you do that? No. You okay. Can't. I mean, it's Just, called. I mean, technically, it's called an, an annexation. Normally. But you don't launch airstrikes before you annex something. That's just taking over something. That's mine. Yeah, I mean that's kind of everybody does. Everybody. That's what Russia did to you uh, to but, the Crimea. Yeah. But I don't go in front of your house and say this what, is my house. No, no. I mean you didn't launch airstrikes first. So I mean I don't even have the capability to do that. Yeah. So get the fuck off my lawn. Now I will find the capability to do it. <laughs> I'm going to find a fucking Cessna circling my house tomorrow. Get really nervous. Yeah, I'm going to drop fucking baseballs because that's all I can afford after a Cessna. Cessnas are expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Any plane's, ex- well, uh, any plane's expensive. Yeah, you're right. You can just rent out one with a sign that says your house is not mine. <laughs> a uh, little fucking banner on the yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, after he proclaimed the Kujistan province to be his own, uh, you would think that the rest of the international uh, neighborhood would be like, you're fucking stupid. Get the fuck out of here, Saddam. I would assume. It was immediately supported by pretty much every Persian Gulf state and the United States, including France. They heard about the, the success. Yeah. Uh, it was a resounding success. <laughs> yeah. They're like, well, clearly Iran can't possibly stand against them now. Uh, pretty much the only power to reject Saddam's claim was the Soviet Union who, uh, despite uh, previously pouring millions upon millions of dollars with the military equipment into Iraq, uh, the two are no longer friends. This is mostly because Saddam, who was not a socialist, uh, massacred pretty much all of Iraq's Communist Party, which the Soviet Union 
has some qualms with. It's kind of the thing. Yeah. Um, the next day, Iraq launched its ground invasion, spearheaded by six divisions, outfitted with the best Soviet equipment. Fours, uh, four of the divisions would cut towards Iran's crown jewel and Saddam's main target, the Khuzestan. Uh, not only did they want to secure those oil fields, he also had some misplaced belief that such a loss of an important and rich provenance would strike a blow to the young government's prestige and magically cause it to fall apart. It makes no sense. Um, it, I, I, I tried to rationalize that. Like maybe people like, Hey, this government's really weak. Let's kick it out. But they literally just got shot in the street. Yeah. Trying to, you know, take over the Shah's government. I, I don't know. Did Saddam have any real military background? He had no military background. Okay, that could possibly explain some. Um, the most military background he had was that he took part in a military coup uh, for independence. Oh. But it's not like he was a soldier. Right. He was just, like I said, he was a a political thug for the Bathurst Party. That's pretty much it. Um, the, so the other two Iraqi divisions pushed straight ahead into Iran to cut off any counterattack Iran might be able to scrape together from its fractured military. Uh, instead of putting up a coordinated resistance to the large Iraqi front, the Iranian defenders pretty much just scattered, went back to the cities and dug in to wait, um, which would end up being a really good idea. Yeah. Um, soon, uh, the important Iranian port cities of Abaddon and Khormshar were put under direct siege. It was around now that the Iraqi military began deploying chemical weapons for the first time around Susengard. Oh, fuck. Two mostly unknown effects. It's really hard to get a solid figure. Um, somebody told me that in the beginning of the war that their chemical uh, warfare process is pretty shoddy and their gas would be about 20% fatal. But I mean, gas, even in its most fatal in war, especially when it's deployed like theirs was through bombs and, and yeah. artillery strikes, it's not the direct casualties. It's fucking terrifying and demoralizing. Yeah. Like getting atomized with an artillery shell sucks. Like nobody wants that to happen. Right. But I think everybody would pick that over getting your eyes scalded out of your head by yeah. a fucking chemical gas or watching your friend drown his own lung juices. Like nobody wants to stick around and fight in that shit. No. Nobody wants to even put on the gear to do it, too. Yeah, that's a good reason for it. So fuck that. Uh, Iraqi forces pushed seemingly unopposed into Iran, and the Iranian Air Force finally got shit together and launched a counterattack. American-made F-4 Phantoms and F-5 Tigers targeted Iraqi infrastructure like oil pipelines and the capital city of Baghdad itself and Mosul Air Base. Phantoms are so cool. Um, the Iraqi anti-air defense was so lax that the Iranians hardly took any casualties during the strike, while Iraq took heavy casualties. Uh, dozens of Soviet-made Iraqi jets were down within the first two days, and these were things that could not be replaced um, in Iraq. At this point, Iraq had something resembling infrastructure to build, replacement parts, stuff like that for their tanks. A little bit for their helicopters. Definitely not their jets. So you would think your job as uh, anti-air would be to anti-air. And this didn't happen? Well, I mean, Iraq didn't have really any... They didn't plan ahead for the concept that they might be under air attack because oh, the, the mission went so well. Right. And, oh, okay. And, and I mean, they're the ones invading. They, they had this weird thought that, well, if, if I had an air force and somebody invaded me, I would attack the invading army. Not like let's attack their support and supply networks, right. which is exactly what Iran did. They're like, well, we could blow up their, their forward forces too. But if we just, 
take out all their gas and repair parts, they'll eventually just break down and stop. And ended up being a really good, good idea. Yeah. Ended up being a really good idea. Um, Iranian-flown, American-made Cobra attack helicopters began to harass and strafe the advancing Iraqi army divisions and inflicted horrible losses. Uh, they didn't really have any effective count, uh, counterattack uh, for any helicopters, like which is weird because they had shoulder fire anti-aircraft missiles right. for this exact purpose. But yeah. They never really worked for shit. Oh, um, it was around this time that the world saw its first ever helicopter dogfight uh, with Iraqi Heinz clashing with Iranian Sea Cobras on several occasions. Oh, that's fucking cool. Now, everybody talks about the Iran-Iraq. We're like, oh, dude, so sweet that there's a helicopter dogfight. But it wasn't a dogfight. It wasn't a dogfight like in the normal sense of a dogfight because helicopters aren't really equipped to do that. Uh, I don't know if they are now, but they certainly weren't then. Uh, um, so really what it was is that one helicopter stumbled upon another helicopter on accident and launched an anti-tank guided missile at it and took it <laughs> down. And that ended up kind of being the thing is like one helicopter would sneak up on the other one and try to blow it out of the sky. That's uh, fucking cool. Yeah. It, I mean, I still would love to see that, but like, it wasn't like there's, circling around each other and like this whirlwind Tom of Cruise. death. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's actually multiple accounts of jets and helicopters going at it with the helicopters losing in every documented case for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a, a unconfirmed report that an Iranian Cobra managed to take down an Iraqi MiG. Uh, there's no proof of this, but if it did happen, that's like a one in that a million shot. That getting fucking shunned, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know he had a fucking like PCS or something. Yeah. It's like, I, I just need some time to myself yeah. guys. He had a fucking reclass <laughs> on the 30. I'm pretty sure reclassing in Iran is, or in Iraq is just getting shot yeah, in the back of the head. Dude, you died like that. <laughs> Fuck. So on the 30th of September, Iranian air force jets would launch their most daring attack ever. Operation scorched sword was a surprise attack on, on an Iraqi, uh, nuclear reactor that was funded and built by France. Ooh. Um, which was built with the sole reason of, making nuclear weapons. Um, that's the only reason why Iraq wanted it. I mean, it was built so far away from like everything else that it wasn't like powering any cities or anything. It's just like, yeah, it was just there. Don't mind us. We're just, you know, refining uranium for other reasons. Um, so it would actually be the first ever attack on a nuclear reactor in the history of warfare. And the first ever pre, uh, preventative attack on a nuclear facility. Um, and I say that because, Iran knew as much as pretty much anybody else is like if Iraq had a nuclear weapon, they would totally be using it in Iran because they've already been gassing the dog shit out of yeah. it. Um, no mercy. It didn't do a lot of damage um, because it was hardened. And um, I mean, it was a military facility in, his, in everything except name. So it was hardened. There was bunkers and anti-air defense all around. Right. Um, but a couple of years later, the uh, Israelis actually came in and flattened the goddamn thing. Whoa. Yeah, so Iran and Israel actually worked together. Yeah. An well, accident. Yeah. But, it, but not. But it happened. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, back at the city of Kormshar, the Iraqi military uh, had expected an easy victory, and they were getting torn to shreds. Um, the Iranian defenders were a loose col- a collection of around 3,000 Revolutionary Guards, random volunteers, some officer cadets from the local high school, police, and what? Navy commandos. Yeah. Uh, none of them were actually working together. Um they all kind of worked together and loosely uh, organized teams, but nobody was communicating with the other for like a collective defense, which is, it sounds bad, but it worked really well. And I think it worked really well because it was so decentralized. Like one group could get fucking wiped out in a gas attack and it didn't hurt any kind of command and control. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a high school 
Yeah, yeah. Random. It was like a, like the JRTC from high school. Yeah. <laughs> Those fucking memes are true. Yeah, yeah. And they they didn't surrender. Uh, no, for, they didn't. And we'll go we'll go further than that. Uh, despite all of this, um, the Iranians dubbed the city the City of Blood and Martyrs, and wrote on every single building they could find, "We will defend the motherland to the last drop of blood." And you can actually find these signs and buildings in Kormshar to this day. Uh, they left them up as a as a memorial to all, all, all the revolutionary martyrs. So a raid against them was more than 20,000 Iraqi troops and around 500 tanks. That should be enough. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, while Holy the Iraqis fuck. made steady progress, they would do so over piles and piles of their own dead bodies. Um, Iraqis, desperate to secure the Shat al-Arab port cities, kept pouring men and material into the attack, and the defenders turned the city into a killing ground by flooding the surrounding marshlands, forcing the Iraqi soldiers to move over small strips of land towards the city Ooh. in pretty much single-file lines. I like that. Yeah. And the, like the, the, the water was so deep in those areas, the tanks couldn't drive through them. So they had like, Oh, well, we're going to line everybody up in a fucking conga line of doom. Yeah. Kind of march slowly towards the city. Kind of getting a D day vibe on that yeah. one. Uh, it made them incredibly easy targets for obvious reasons. Um, the Iraqis launched large scale tank attacks with absolutely no infantry support. Nice. Yeah. Uh, making their tanks easy pickings for revolutionary guard anti tank teams armed with rocket repelled grenades, recoilless rifles and Molotov cocktails. Uh, remember how I told you earlier that the Iraqis never learned from history because yeah. we've known for about a hundred years not to launch unsupported Iraqi or not, not to launch Probably unsupported armor attack. First battle. Yeah. From the, from the, from pretty much 1918. Yeah. We've known this. Um, but you know, who needs training when you got new stuff? That's right. Uh, by September 30th, the Iraqi forces managed to break through the defenses on the outskirts of the city. Instead of victory, however, they are greeting by entrenched fighters defending each house, um, room to room, like defending the couch from the fucking love seat type situation. HGTV. Yeah. Open concept. They're, they're making some Everywhere. open concept out of Iraqi yeah. bodies. Uh, the Iranian defenders would not yield, and the Iraqis broke once again, retreating out of the city back to where they started. Um, by October 14th, the Iraqis were trying again. The Iranian defenders were exhausted, running low on supplies, and pretty much they just couldn't hold the opening of the city anymore. They withdrew in good order back to the city's grand mosque and ordered whoever was left in the city who hadn't evacuated to get the fuck out. Why? Because they're calling in airstrikes on their own position. Nice. Uh, the survivors pulled across the Karun River under Iraqi artillery bombardment while a small force of teenagers, cops, and other volunteers yes. <laughs> launched a suicidal real guard action to slow them down. Um, not only did they succeed... But they didn't get wiped out. Dude, they, they, everything is swinging Iran. <laughs> yeah. They, they dispersed back into the city and operated as something of like a guerrilla force for months afterwards. Yeah. Everything's just going their way. That's so when cool. Iraq took the city over, uh, they pretty much got an empty city full of their own dead bodies and a couple guerrillas lurking around the shadows. But we got it. Yeah. But we took the city, guys. <laughs> Um, and you know, one of the issues that they had continuously uh, throughout the war is um, Iraq's military doctrine was pretty much Soviet World War II doctrine where you, no matter what the target was, you'd surround it and then just lay waste to uh, artillery bombardments, which isn't a terrible doctrine, um, but it makes, that works in a war where things aren't moving. Like everybody has hundreds of tanks and hundreds of APCs and helicopters and and jets. Like they moved really slow. And uh, not only that, this operation was planned to take only two days. Um, it instead take a month and cost the Iraqi military on 7,000 dead 
uh, around with two, uh, 200 destroyed armored vehicles. Um, these are things that the Iraqi military cannot replace. Um, it was around this point in the war that Iraq will learn a valuable lesson. Just because your soldiers are wearing and using the most modern equipment does not make them good soldiers, nor does it motivate them. So they're learning now. No. Oh, okay. This is the point they should have learned that lesson, oh, okay. but they didn't. Um, the Iranians were fighting on their home turf, riled up by revolutionary fervor against invading army. This was the Iranian they shall not pass, uh, not one step back <laughs> moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is their moment of national awakening okay. against an, an outside force. The Iraqis didn't have any of that. Um, the Iraqi soldiers were described by a British journalist, Patrick Brogan, as, quote, badly led and lacking an offensive spirit. And to make matters worse, the Iraqi army had long since tossed aside tactical training in favor of political indoctrination. Some had lived through enough coups to know what a strong, well-led, well-trained, independently uh, motivated army could do to a government. Yeah. That was kick his stupid ass out, and he didn't want that. Um, any actual military control of the military was stripped and its power centralized around Saddam, uh, which is problematic since Saddam had never had any military training. For starters, he thought being a soldier... It was like being a singer or being an artist or something. It was something that you had or you didn't have. It wasn't something you'd get from training. Um, this is from an article called Saddam's War. It says, quote, Saddam believed that military, infected, uh, military effectiveness was a matter of the warrior in as much as medieval terms of the warrior and the spirit and morale of soldiers, not necessarily the training organization or discipline to to him, bravery on the battlefield, exemplified by a personal vi a vision of the Arab fighter, was only reasonable measure of military effectiveness. Bravery. That's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, that isn't to say that they didn't go through any training at all, however. Uh, but what training they did have was suitably insane. Um, according to an Iraqi war veteran named Adnan, um, and I guess coming out ag against this war... Because this is from like 2003. Oh, okay. Um, coming out against this war was is is and was super unpopular in Iraq to this day. Uh, they kind of washed Saddam off the picture, and they're like, "Well, like hundreds of thousands of us still died, so we should still respect it." Um, so he's going under a pseudonym. He goes by Adnan. He says, "Quote: I was enrolled in training. It was very harsh for all the company. I remember the trainers holding batons. Those trainers hit you on your head, on your shoulders, and on your chest." I felt it from the beginning. They're putting down the morale of the army, you know, and like when a random conscripted private knows what you're doing is bad yeah. for the entire army. Like you seriously have fucked up. You're not screaming like fuck. You're not screaming patriotism from the start there. I mean, they are. I mean, it's all political and like they're beating, getting asked questions about bathism and, and about Saddam. And that's what they all cared about. It, it's kind of like, uh, you can kind of compare it very, very loosely to the old Prussian military training of just brutal discipline to make you so afraid of the outcome if you run or don't listen that you're just a little, little stay and fight. Yeah. Um, but well, it just I didn't work. I also imagine that they're not going like, fuck Saddam's cool while getting hit. No, but they're, they they better be. They're oh, that's hit, true. They're yeah. Get hit they're some more. Get hit. It's harder. Thank you, Daddy Hussein. <laughs> um, also, it didn't help that a full 80% of the Iraqi army was Shia. Oh. Yeah, making them hesitant to fight hard against the people they had more in common with than the ruler that was ordering yeah. them to war. Um, so he instead settled for a politically loyal army. There's an even popular saying among the ranks of it better be a good Bathist than a good soldier. 
Yeah. Why is that even? What? How is that a saying? Because it saves it's your not ass. Good. I mean, because you can be a really, really good soldier and make everybody look bad, and you're fucked. Um, but if you tow the the party line and learn all the slogans or whatever, and Saddam's fucking favorite color, they'll probably get promoted faster. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the battle had taken so long that the Iranian it gave the Iranian government time to rally. Saddam thought, um, kind of like Hitler thought during World War II, like you'd kick in the front door and the whole rotten structure would come down. Like that's what he said when when he invaded the oh, Soviet okay, Union. Yeah. Um, but instead of turning on their government like he thought they would, um, it turned the, uh, the Iranian people to include those Arab uh Kujistan Arabs that he he won on his side. They all just rallied around their new government against the foreign invader. Um, it was actually kind of funny because the whole time the Saddam had been planning this, um, he had been told time and time again by his intelligence chiefs that he'd be welcomed by the Kujistan province as a liberator. Um, that welcoming party never showed up. Who told him that? Someone who probably didn't want to die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. So he had been funding the. I mean, he had been funding those militants in the area for so long. He probably should have known, but I, I'm just going to assume that he has been lied to for years and years about this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, instead, those Arabs actually swelled loyalist militias and went and fought the Iraqis themselves in the weird jumble of different armies fighting this. That's right. As one army. Oh, it gets more confusing. <laughs> we'll go into that later. Um. And, and you know. This whole time, remember, like he he understands that like bad things are happening because like there's tons of people dying, but like the everybody everybody is still saying like yeah it's going great we took over Kormshar <laughs> like we totally took it over man and you're then, doing great boss yeah you're it, doing real good I mean we still have like hundreds of thousands Metals of soldiers on your left. chest yeah. look really good today yeah um so that siege in Kormshar had actually damaged the cities or the damaged the Iraqi military so badly they would no longer be able to advance into Iran. Instead, they would dig in and prepare for the roles to be reversed. Um, it had been held off for so long that the Iranian military was able to play catch up and begin deploying its new fanatical army to the front lines full of all of those dudes who swelled around the revolutionary flag. I feel like, yo, Iraq just took over our port. And everybody, and that's when Saddam was like, this is, I, I'm 10 seconds away from winning. And then suddenly he has a whole new army. Oh. Facing him, you know, hundreds of thousands of people swell the Iranian military like overnight. So this is another army that Iran has. Yeah, most of them would fall into the Revolutionary Guard, and oh, um, other offshoots of the Revolutionary Guard, which I'll talk a little bit more, I think, in the next episode because that's when they start coming in. Okay, um, what it boiled down to was Revolutionary Guard were moderately armed, decently trained to the extent of like they knew how to fire their weapons. They knew something that looked like. Small unit tactics, kind of. Didn't have a lot of heavy equipment. Um, and there's still the Iranian army, but everybody looks at it sideways because it was the Shah's army. But we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, so at the same time, while they've been throwing themselves against Kormshar, the Iranians have been bombing the piss out of Iraq to include their fuel and uh, ammo supplies. And they'd effectively strangled the country in an aerial siege, which is something I don't think has ever been effectively done yet. Like they have the city, uh, they have the the entire country of Iraq fucked. Um, I wonder if they're still telling Saddam. Yeah, they're still good. Yeah, we totally fucked him up. I mean, at at this point, I think they know, but I don't know if he's accepted it. I feel like he's still living in his own little castle. Probably, probably. 
Um, on the other hand, Iran supplies had not been exhausted. Uh, and despite sanctions and the militaries often cannibalize spare parts from like one vehicle to get the other one to go. Oh, they're rat fucking. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, and they, also they were uh, brought to start buying stuff on the black market. Like anything that looked like a, a military vehicle was being bought up. Pickup trucks were good enough. Like anything. That camo Toyota looks good. Yeah, I mean, shit, half of... Uh, like half the world went selling weapons. So it's if anybody is selling weapons, they're they're friends now. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, the Iran the Iranian knew they had them trapped. Um, in the the siege of Abaddon as well. Um, and they did that by trapping the Iraqi army in a naval battle. Um, the a lot wa- of shits going on here. Yeah. Well, the Iranians actually had a surprisingly powerful Navy. Um, and at one point, um, the U S was creating a special class of destroyer or something for the Shah's Navy that he never ended up getting a chance of buying, but like it was going to be even stronger. I'll just wait for you to explain. I want to <laughs> know what happens. Um, well in one battle, the Iraqis lose 80% of their entire Navy. Holy fuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this, I'm not sure if it was exactly because the Iranian Navy, or because the Iranian Air Force just bombed the dog shit out of them. And at this point, the Iranians pretty much have air superiority. Right. Um, the Iraqi Air Force, they're, I would say they're at least equal to or maybe even greater than in material, but like their pilots were awful in comparison. It almost seems like they're non existent. That's pretty common. Okay. See, throughout the war, the only thing the Iraqis were ever really good at is static defense. At least they have cool shit. Not for long. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool too. Um Are you going to drink your drink by the way? Oh, I'm working on it. Okay. Um So, uh once they lost their navy, they had no way to uh seal off Abaddon. So cuz like it's a port city, so they have it sealed off on three sides, the fourth side being the ocean. Um well, now but they're too dumb to figure that out or they just re- maybe some they give them permission to pull back. That, so they're still locked into that the seems siege. Like it, is, it could be it. And Iran knows they're locked into the siege. So they just keep feeding the city supplies to keep the Iraqi army there and dying. And that would go on for a very long time. Um so that was when on December 7th, 1980, Saddam announced that Iraq was going on the defensive. Um that's right. In about almost a year not almost a year, a couple months, give him a couple months. God. Um, he went from having the fifth largest military in the world to being completely spent. Ooh, we, um, with this, the war would turn into a modern day version of the Western front world war one and one of the worst attrition wars of the 20th century. And that is where we will pick up next week. Iran Iraq war part two. Yes. Electric boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> I can't call it that because it's what I called the War of 1812 Part 2. That's what we've called a lot of things. It's my go-to sequel name. It's a good sequel name. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not sure what surprises me more about Part 2. If it's the Iraqi army's complete inability to fight or the Iraqi military's complete inability to plan. I, I have two things on this. For part two. The first one is how much men did it take to tell Saddam, hey, we need to go on the defensive? I don't think anybody told him that because... Or he just realized it? I have an anecdote here in a little bit later that you'll find out what happens to people. 
uh, who questioned Saddam's plans. That's what I'm saying. Good things. How many men did he go through to tell him, hey, we need to go on the defensive? What I'm willing to believe was there's enough international gears at play, and we'll talk about that a little more in part three, um, of trying to feed him money and supplies. That even Saddam knew, hey, I need to sit back and wait for all these my new sugar daddies to kick in the money and the supplies, and then I can go on the attack again. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, yeah. But I think that's more likely than Saddam listening to one of his generals. So like six guys. I would say that there's probably more than one that said, hey, sir, maybe we should try this. <laughs> yeah, just fucking shot. Immediately. Yeah. Also, second part. What happened to the magician? Unknown at this time. Okay. We will, will we go into it later? We will assume I that so. uh, he is, was voted in is recently part three? into the uh, the new Iraqi parliament. He's not in know. the part three, huh? He's not. He's never yeah. in again. Fuck. Um, I, I regret to inform you. No, he is That's not. The, my, so far, my favorite part. Um, he got a plane full of fucking cool magician shit, probably. Well, he did get a cool a plane full of cool magician shit. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it kind of pains me that I'm, we're not able to talk about his sons either because they didn't really play a part quite yet because they're snidely whiplash levels of insane and madness. Like, they're, if you were to make a comic book character the picture of evil, they would be Saddam Hussein's sons, and then people would be like, that's unrealistic. But they existed. There was two of them. Uday and Kusei. Oh, Why yeah. am I drawing a blank here? I don't know, but it makes me sad. Yeah. Oh, well, I know that. Well, they both died in a gun battle with U.S. troops. So that gives me an excuse to actually do an episode on them. Oh, because okay, <laughs> well, that's military history. They is, died in a yeah. gunfight. Uh, but that's that's it's not either here or there. So that this is part two. Thanks for tuning in yeah. Tune in next week for part three. Um, as always, you can follow the show on Twitter at lines underscore by. You can follow me at jcast 99. Follow me at nickcast m1. If you think what we do is worth a buck. Throw us a buck on Patreon or buy a sticker or a coffee cup or something. Still haven't seen the sticker. <laughs> uh, I'm false flag stickers. They don't actually exist. Uh, and or uh, what's also become pop, a popular method of giving us stuff. Send us booze. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just got Please. A, we just got a package from Ireland in the mail and it's full of whiskey and it's awesome. It's fucking great. So uh, until then, we will see you next week. Hi. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible, and as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download his title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.